0: Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is page 815 in the church Bibles. And in just a moment, we're going to begin reading at verse 22 to verse 28. It's wonderful to see you this morning. So we're going to listen to the word read and then... We're going to pray and ask God for his help. Verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God and the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all. In all. Amen. Let's pray together and ask God for his help. Father, we thank you for the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. We have sung about it this morning and we thank you that it is real. It guards us against pride and and foolishness. And now, God, we pray that you will speak to us as your word is open and explain. It is your voice that we seek. And only your voice in light of this father as always we're very much aware that we can't do anything as we should without your help and we come very much acknowledging that we need your help and we come in anticipation of your desire to give us your help you are and you have always been a perfect father delighting to give your children good gifts. So we look to you and only you now for every good gift needed in this moment. For Jesus' sake, we would ask this. Amen. If your Bible is open, you can look in verse 12. How can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? This was the question Paul was asking those in the Corinthian church who were convinced that that was a lie. They were saying some in the church, there is no resurrection of the dead. And so Paul, with his God-given authority and clarity, begins to correct the lie because lies are always a dangerous thing. And he begins with the fact of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'll see that in verses 3 to 6. Lots of people saw the resurrected Christ, Paul writes, including Paul himself. He then goes on and he begins to show all throughout this chapter that everything true about the resurrection And congregation, this is very, very important that we understand what I'm about to say. Everything true about the resurrection exercises some pressure on the now. In other words, the resurrection is is much more than a great promise when death comes to us or when death comes to those that we love in Christ, The resurrection is also a powerful incentive, which Paul says ought to affect our everyday living and our everyday thinking about our everyday living as followers of Jesus Christ. For example, we'll see this in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, Paul says, okay, if there's no resurrection, then you can see it there, verse 32, it's party time. Every day is a vacation day. It's an endless summer. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there's no resurrection, then there will be no accounting of the life we've been granted before a holy God, so go do as you please. And of course, some people do as they please. However, Paul tells them, verse 33, don't be misled, rather verse 34, I hope your Bible's open, you'll see this, verse 34, come back to your senses. In other words, think about your life, think about your life. And later on, he will write a second letter to the church in Corinth, and he's going to explain to them in chapter 5 that everyone will face the judgment seat of Christ. And this judgment seat will not be a decision of where the genuine Christian will spend eternity. That was a done deal when, by grace, we came to Christ in repentance of faith, and we thank God for that. However, this judgment will be determined of what condition we'll spend all of eternity with Christ, if you like, our quality of life in heaven. Now, you know and I know that the phrase quality of life is a much exercised phrase in many circles that people move in. It's a concern only about the now of earth, the quality of life now. However, Paul's logic and therefore God's truth is very, very clear. J.I. Packer is going to help us a little bit. All the elders have given ourselves the assignment of reading one of his books, finishing our course with joy. And in it, he says this. The quality of our unending enjoyment of Christ's love and goodness in heaven will in some way correspond to the quality and love of our devotion to Christ that marks our lives now on earth. That's 2 Corinthians 5.10. His reference to knowing the fear of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.11, then hints at the sad possibility that slackness and irresponsibility in Christ's service now may unfit one for the fullest fullness of heaven's joy. So Paul takes care not to grow slack in his ministry, not to grow slack in his evangelistic persuasion. He goes on. Whatever admonition Paul might have addressed to Christians in every age and stage in life, recommending relaxation and taking things easy, i.e., i.e., eat and drink, for tomorrow your dead, would not have been among them. Now this is akin to the words of Jesus. It was the parable of the faithful and wise manager who was continuously ready for the return of his king. How was he ready? Vibrant service on behalf of his king. And Jesus commends his logic. And this is what he says. Jesus says, to whom much is given, time, energy, resources, intellect, commands, because the king is going to return because there is a resurrection, to whom much is given, much is required. Now, listen carefully. Why does Paul and Jesus say these things? Are they just trying to ruin our lives down here? I mean, we're just like a week and a half away from summer. Are they going to steal all our fun? Is that what they want? No. They tell us this because there is a resurrection. And they tell us this because we will give an account on the last day of how our lives unfolded as Christians. This is how God set things up. And they know. They know. God the Father knows, the Son and the Holy Spirit know that the joys of heavens and, uh, and the rewards which are forever will far outweigh any temporal joy on earth, any temporal advantage that we have had, any, any advantage that we rejected for the sake of the gospel. The Christian never thinks that now is better than the then. And the Christian must know that how we live now, because of the resurrection, It's going to matter for all eternity. All the good things of life are less than nothing. This is the Christian mind. All the good things of life are less than nothing when compared to Christ's love. All the treasures and advantages of a million kingdoms could not make me richer or happier or more content than Ephesians 3.18, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Christ. And so Paul goes on. He gives a historical reality of the resurrection. He gives some of the implications of the resurrection. And then he begins to explain the resurrection. Verse 22, again, if your Bible is open, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And we have been learning over the past two Sundays that we are all by nature in Adam. Therefore, we all live with the effects of the fall, which means in one sense, man as man is not well, and he's only getting better. Many people live under that illusion. The 20th century should have taught us that's not true. Man is is not sick, and he only needs the right tonics. So man's not sinful, the world says. He's just sick. So put him in the right location. Give him the right vocation. Give him a sufficient amount of compensation. And maybe in a perfect relation then man, is, man will be just fine. Understand that? Give him a good job and a good lady or a good guy and a good place. He'll be fine. But the Bible says, no, we are not well. We are not sick. It's worse. We are dead. In Adam, we are dead. We all inherit death, spiritual death and literal death. Indeed, Ecclesiastes 7.2, death is the destiny for all men and women. The living should take this to heart. Later on, the writer will say that it's better to go to a funeral, think about the right things, than go to a party and think about and maybe even say the wrong things. And because of our deadness, is, which is inherited in Adam, Paul is telling us we need an act of God to raise the dead. That's verse 22b, in Christ, act of God, all shall be made alive. Now think with me. When Paul writes to the Ephesian church, He writes to them after they have professed faith in Jesus Christ. He's writing to Christians. And so in chapter 1, he begins to tell them the great extent of their salvation. What the Father planned before there was time, before there was space, or before anything. What the Father planned. Our salvation. The Holy Spirit applied. And the Son of God secured by his substitutionary death on the cross. And so after he tells them of the great intervention of God... In their lives, he reminds them at the beginning of chapter 2, what? He says this, hey guys, remember you were dead in your trespasses and you were dead in your sins. You, you weren't well, you, were, you weren't sick, you were dead. You were dead until what? Until God's grace came to you. And since dead people can't make themselves alive, can they? No, of course not. What can you do to make a dead person hear you? Nothing. Nothing. What can you do to make a dead person see you? Some of you are thinking, good, nothing. What can you do to make a dead person get up and dance with you, if you're allowed to dance? Nothing. So what can you do to make a spiritually dead person see? Nothing. Hear. Nothing. Believe. Nothing. So there's a massive problem. Yes? Yes. Yes. Unless there is one who speaks by his word, who speaks into the deadness, and he speaks, as the hymn writer writes, he speaks, listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. That's why the Old Testament, the book of Jonah, the New Testament, the last book, Revelation, salvation belongs to the Lord. He owns the whole thing. And if you think about this, This removes the kind of, you know, Wheaties approach to evangelism, uh, the we are the champions and don't you want to be like us approach to evangelism. And this, of course, is the great message, as in Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be made alive. The grace of God must act. The word of Christ must be proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing Romans 10 and hearing by the word of God. That's why we preach it. That's why we proclaim it. That's why, in all honesty, we do things like Wednesday at the park. Somebody's got to say something. We understand. But only God makes the dead person alive. So are you with me? Whether it's a physical resurrection, which is coming, a spiritual resurrection, which is needed, and many of us now enjoy, and maybe some of you here today need. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The grace of God in Jesus is the strength in all of us. As Paul writes, if you hear God's voice. 2 Corinthians 6. If you hear God's voice, then don't harden your heart. Okay. But there are signs of new life, right? The signs of new life are the assurances of new life. Trees bud because trees are alive. Kids grow because kids are alive. The Christian lives a brand new life because by grace they've been given a new life. Some of the new life is obvious. Some of the new life is slower and comes along as we move along in our journey. We will all still deal with besetting sins. But by God's grace, we know they're wrong. And with God's grace, we're seeking to conquer them. No signs of life. Perhaps you're only a religious person. Doing your religious duty no signs of love and peace and forgiveness, no signs of evangelistic endeavor, then you would ask yourself, am I truly born again? We know, though, as Christians, we're forgiven. We know as Christians we've been changed. And we know then, as Paul begins to write now, our future is secure. And it's to that future then that Paul speaks to. He's speaking about the end of the world, right? The end of the world as we know it. Each in turn, verse 23, you see it there, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Verse 24a, then the end will come. So there's going to be an end. Life is not circular, it is, it is linear. There was a starting place and there is an ending point. Okay, so then how does it work? Well, this is God's plan. God is ordering everything, Ephesians 1.11, according to his eternal purpose. So what's God's plan? Well, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is coming. Now, if you're a Jesus person, how good is that? There's nothing to fear about the end of the world. And God is going to do this, though, in his own time, in his own way. So this morning, we just have two questions we're going to try to answer. What is the kingdom, and how is it completed? Because you notice that Paul will not give any details here about the win of the end of time. Right? Paul's not going to give us dates. He's not giving us a whole lot of detail. He's just explaining big picture. This is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and so on. Okay, first of all, then let's answer the question: what is the kingdom? And this is a very important question. Because if we just skip over this, then the sensible person reads their Bible, they read the newspapers, they look at the world and they ask a really good question. Okay, if there's a king, and it's Jesus, and as I look at the world, what in the world is he doing? If there's a victory, where is it? Why in the world is there so much horror in the world, so much terror and murder and all the things? Why is that the case if Jesus is king? I mean, I don't want to be rude, but he may not be a very good king may not be very good at his job as the world as we have it. Well, it's for that reason that we need to understand what the Bible means when it speaks about the kingdom or the kingdom of God. And Jesus, verse 23, handing over the kingdom of God. And so we need to consider a few scriptures from Luke's gospel because the issue of the kingly rule of of Christ runs itself all the way through Luke's gospel, more than most gospels. So if you have a pen, I'd recommend writing down these verses just to make sure that I'm saying them right and just to make sure that um, we're tracking along the same way. So let me just give you some examples. The word of an angel comes to Mary about the child that will be given to her in chapter one. And the angel is going to tell the Mary that she's going to give birth to a king. Luke chapter one, verse 32 and three. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendant forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay, so first thing about the kingdom. Earthly kingdoms come and go, rise and fall, but the kingly rule of Christ, once it has begun, will never end. Will never end. And Jesus, as an adult, he begins to identify himself with this this outcome. And he understands, this is his ministry, Luke chapter 4, verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. He had been healing people the previous evening. People were looking for him, as you would suspect, and they want him to stay. And he says, listen, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So the kingdom of God is t- tied to the gospel proclamation, c- tied to the message that Jesus is going to die for sins. Luke chapter 9, verse 60. People are wanting to be on Jesus' team, but Jesus is like, okay, but there's some qualifications. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 60. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and take care of family things. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is, here it is, fit for service in the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is the priority over everything. Chapter 10, verse 9. Heal the sick, Jesus says to the disciples, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. So the kingdom is power. A sick people made well. Blind people see. Chapter 11, verse 2. Followers of Christ are told, when you pray, Jesus said, pray, your kingdom come. And I hope you do that. I hope that you make this a regular part of your prayer life. Each morning I try to do my best to say God, I pray for the honor of your name and may your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. Chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus says, If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come near you. Notice the present tense. The kingdom is active and it's here and it confronts evil and it destroys evil. Chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus speaking to religious people who thought they were really in with God. He says to them, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself thrown out. So there is pronouncement in the kingdom. Religious duty cannot save you. There is a division on the day when the kingdom is revealed in its fullness. So what you discover as you work through the gospel of Luke is that when the kingdom comes in its final expression... The kingdom of God and this is a good definition for it can can be referred to in terms of this God's rule in action that's the kingdom of God God's rule in action it's not a place it's God's rule in action and God's rule in action does not come to us until we come to God in childlike faith this is another reality of the kingdom of God this is Luke chapter 18 verse 16 kids were coming to Jesus the disciples as more of their silliness they say go away and Jesus says no no listen to what he says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these okay Jesus why truly I tell you anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it okay so according to Jesus the attitude which is necessary to receive the kingdom and make one's way into it is the attitude of a little child Childish? No, no, no. Childlike. Huge difference. Childlike. And that was the exact opposite of the very next story that Luke tells us in Luke 18 of the rich young ruler. So you have little kids, and Jesus said you can't enter the kingdom unless you become like a little child child, and then you have a young man who was rich and well healed, and he was interested in eternal life, and he knew all the commands. Mr. Religious, with a big fat wallet. He asked Jesus, I, what do I need to do to live forever? Great question. People like that, they're, they're movers and shakers. I want to inherit eternal life. I want to understand what it, what's involved in this kingdom thing. And then he says this, tell me what I need to do. Okay, Jesus says, if you're serious, what you need to do, notice that, you, you need to do, because you're all grown up, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. That's what you need to do. Because you're grown up. You're not like a little kid. You're grown up. Big boy pants. Big boy shirt. So what does he say? He says no. And he walks away very sad. And Jesus lets him walk away. Stop for a minute. Gosh, that doesn't sound very pastoral, does it? You're letting a guy walk away? Yeah. Yeah, there's some occasions where you let him walk away. Mark chapter 10, I believe it is, this story. Mark 8, Mark writes, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he still let him walk away. Okay, so what was the rich man, young man saying when he, when he was walking away? He was saying that his possessions and his wealth and, the, and the, the positions that are afforded to him because of his wealth mattered more to him than Christ and his kingly rule in his life. He was rejecting the very words of Jesus. He would not come to him as a little child, needy, and in a position of weakness and helplessness, uh, Oftentimes, rich people can't handle that. He wanted his own kingdom. He wanted to determine what was good and what was bad, what was right and wrong, his own way. He would be the king of his kingdom. I mean, what do I need to do? Chapter 18, verse 24, Jesus responds to all that silliness with the classic line, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, listen carefully. Jesus is not teaching against being rich. He's simply making an observation which is true. And what he's saying is this, that oftentimes with our abundance and material comfort comes a sense of self-assertiveness. You understand this? Oftentimes with our wealth and our abundance comes a sense of self-assertiveness. That with abundance comes the idea that I can go just about anywhere and I can do just about anything. And I can say just about anything, and in the case of the rich young ruler, I can believe just about anything. Well, why is that the case? Well, I'm well-stocked for many, many years. I'm well-stocked, and I'm well-connected. And apparently, I'm so smart, says the rich young ruler, I'm so smart, when utter perfection is before me, when perfect holiness is before me, when the Son of God is before me, I'm able to be so blind that I walk away from his entry, his way into the kingdom. So instead of saying, please help me, Jesus, please have mercy, there's no way that I can give up everything for the poor. Please help me. He walks away. Well-stocked, well-connected, but he's not connected to Jesus. You're not in my kingdom, Jesus says. I'm king in my kingdom. Your affluence may give you privileges on earth and we understand it but they do nothing for my kingdom. In fact, Jesus said they actually get in the way. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now you may be here this morning and if you're honest you would say that you care more about your life and your stuff and collecting stuff than Jesus. Or you're using Jesus to collect money and stuff so you can feel secure. Because you think that's what really gives you peace. And that's what really gives you security, right? I have confidence about the future because I have a lot of stuff. Jesus says, okay, but your future is way past now. There is a resurrection. There is a day of accountability. Your future is past your death. Uh, Your money is no good in heaven. There's going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous, repentant people in childlike faith. The unrighteous who refuse to come to me And repentance and childlike faith. Now, loved ones, please be honest. What is the constant preoccupation of the vast majority of people in our culture today? Money. To be rich or well-off. In fact, well-off might be a code for being rich. Now, those around Jesus heard what Jesus was saying about all this, and guess what their question was? Who then can be saved? Good question. How in the dickens am I going to be converted? Listen to what Jesus said. What is impossible with man? Salvation is possible with God. You see, that's good. That's childlike faith, childlike trust. Okay, just stop for a second. Are there any benefits in receiving the kingdom? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Chapter 18, verse 28, same story. Peter says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Just like Peter, right? Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Oh, you know, it's so spiritual, right? And listen to what Jesus said. Listen, cloth ears. He doesn't say cloth ears. This is what he says. Truly, I tell you, no one who's left his home or his wife or his brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Do you understand what that means? Let me give you a personal example. All of my years in pastoral ministry, I've been far, far away from home. Can't go home today and go hang out with my dad after the service. I haven't been able to do that now for 20-something years. Poor Joe. No. No, not poor Joe. Not poor Joe. Do you understand that? Not poor Joe. Well, what's wrong? Has he got a cold heart? Is his heart two sizes too small? Is that the problem? Because he doesn't really like his mom or he doesn't really like his dad? Is that the issue? Of course not. Jesus made a promise. It's coming back to you in spades, Joe. It's coming back to you in spades. It has. I'm a fairly happy person. I do call my dad once or twice a week. Jesus keeps his word. Childlike trust, childlike faith. Come into the kingdom, bow down, please let me in. Kids, they can teach us a lot. We need to go on. I don't have time to tell you about the blind Bartimaeus. He was crying out to Jesus, please, son of David, king. That's what he was saying, king of the kingdom, come heal me. Or Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Everyone's pumped up, right? Here comes the king. But their whole version was upside down. They were thinking political and temporal and personal. Here we go. We're going to finally have our guy in office and it's all going to be great. But Jesus was thinking spiritual and eternal and global, right? The crowds were unprepared for the king of the kingdom to be naked, bleeding to his death on a cross. What kind of king is that? What kind of king is that? How embarrassing. No, says the Bible, that's the Savior of the world. That's my Savior. King bleeding naked on a cross. So let's let's be very clear then. The kingdom of God has a now sense to it, and it has a not yet element to it. Now we've been justified. We have peace with God, the gift of righteousness. Thank you, Father, for that. We receive total forgiveness now. Our copy books are clean now because of Jesus. We're adopted children of God now. We enjoy that privilege. It's all true. But the fact of the matter is this now kingdom is not tied to any kind of political agenda, nationalistic agenda, or even a quality of life agenda. Because the kingdom has a not yet element to it as well which is also an expression of the Christian life. So the good we want to do, we don't. And the bad we shouldn't, we do. We're not yet perfect. We may get sick and we may stay sick. We're not always going to be healed. He or she may leave us and they may never come back. We may struggle with income and addiction and injustice as Christians, you name it. And if one is prepared to answer all those difficulties, well, well, you know, you just don't have enough faith. You're not trying Super X, whatever Super X is, because if you tried Super X, you could have total victory. Then you would tell the person, well, you need to consider the life of Paul and you need to consider the life of John and Peter and our example and everything, Jesus Christ, whose, whose example the Scripture beckons us to follow. So we live in the tension of living in the now and the not yet. We recognize that the kingdom has to be received We look for it. We live in it. And we pray for its triumph. And as we bow down to this king, to his rule, to his reign, we can say, maybe with a shaky voice, Whatever my lot is, O king, you have taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Okay, why is that true? Well, one, there's going to be a resurrection. And two, because the kingdom of Jesus Christ is forever. It's forever. What's the kingdom? First question, the kingdom is God's rule in action. How does it come? That's our last question with just a few minutes left. How does it come? Well, think for a moment. As you look at these verses, 23 all the way to 28, Paul is, in a fairly simple way, applying that our glorious future is pretty much guaranteed. There is no enemy so great that's going to stop this chain of events that begin in verse 23. The devil is already defeated foe. He's not going to stop it. He he cannot stop the end the way God wants it to come. He he may move around his piece on the chessboard, if you like, but no matter where he moves, uh, queen to H5, bishop to F3, he's always in checkmate. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Verse 23, okay, how does it happen? Each in turn. In the Greek culture, this would Phrase would be used in military language with the emphasis on order, as in in order. Okay, here's the order. You ready? Christ raised. Look at your Bible. Okay, that's done, right? Christ is raised. The first fruits, the bodies of his people will be raised. Not yet coming. Christ returns. Not yet coming. The end will come. Yes, it will. How? Verse 24, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father as he destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Every rebel is going to be defeated, in other words. No more knows to Jesus. No more I'm not going to do it, Jesus. That's all ended. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, so this is the sequence of the eternal purposes of God. There is an incoming coming each in its turn, in order. Again, when is not the issue here? The end between parts which some people differ on is not Paul's concern here. How is the issue here? Christ started things off by his resurrection. Then the end, dead in Christ raised. Then his alive people gathered. Then, verse 24, the end will come. This is certain. And I want you to see this beautiful picture of mutual submission in the triune God. This beautiful transfer of power from the Son to the Father has nothing to do with status. It's just roles, right? Basic Christian doctrine. What do we know about the Trinity? God the Father, Son, the Spirit. Equal in authority. Equal in glory. Equal in power. So there's no power grab going on here. Paul then quotes in verse 27 from Psalm 8. This is his line of thinking. Listen carefully. Psalm 8. Man has been made a little lower than the angels. The first Adam failed Humanity. The curse was passed down. Everything now toil. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, in his flesh, the perfect man, brings everything, the whole created order, back in submission ultimately to God. The first Adam moved the world into rebellion. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, into submission to God. So in Christ, in his humanity, he submits to himself to the Father. And God, verse 28, who is triune will be over everything to everyone, which includes the submission of every enemy of God to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the truth that everyone will obey Jesus, that Jesus Christ was this world's only hope. Everything will come under that phraseology, under submission to that truth. To those who have been rejecting Jesus' judgment, eternal condemnation, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a hard forever sentence for these kinds of people. To those who are in submission, life, life, eternal life with Jesus Christ. That's the promise. That's guaranteed. Nothing's going to get in the way. Now listen carefully and I'll be through. Look at verse 26. The last enemy is death. Right? So if it's true that the last enemy is is death, verse 26, then it's reasonable to assume that the spiritual forces, the enemies of Jesus Christ and his kingdom rule, will find every opportunity to be preoccupied in matters connected with death. Right? Right? That's reasonable. Death is an enemy. We've got to fight that enemy. The enemy wants to fight us. Hebrews 2.14, the one who holds the power of death, the devil. So think with me for a moment as we end. What would the devil do to advance his cause about death? I thought of four things. I'm going to give them to you. Number one, he would do everything he could to make individuals try and ignore it. Right? Let's just ignore the whole thing until it sneaks up on them and they're unprepared. Where did all the time go? Disaster strikes. I mean, the people that got on the plane, I think it was Thursday, our time, uh, the Egypt 8, 804, they didn't know that was going to happen. The doctor says, you're not fine. Second thing, make death seem so powerful and undefeatable that it creates this fear that is just paralyzing. I don't want you to talk about death. Shh, don't talk about it. Please, Shh. don't. Because if you talk about it, then I'm going to have to take a pill. Three, in matters of the occult, or in matters of -of out-of-body experience. Okay, let's dive in and see what's happening on the other side. I want to talk to my dead uncle Bernie. I want to see what's going on, quote, on the other side. And the lady on the show is talking to dead people left and right. And it seems like everybody's seeing heaven these days. Let's go to them. Four, in matters of the right to die and assisted suicide. It's my choice. And all is dark, and all is gloomy, and all is death. And loved ones, is that not our culture? All kinds of concoctions presented to us as truth about what's on the other side. All kinds of distractions to distract us about death. All kinds of fears about death to make us avoid it and speak of it and think past it at all cost. The enemy brings the lies about the end. And in all of it, all of it, our culture then calls into question the biblical truth about why there is death, what happens after death, and where there is life. And to you and I, believer, 2 Corinthians 5.11, we've been given the incredible privilege and the sobering responsibility to speak into a culture which is afraid of death and knows nothing of genuine life, and we can say to them, if you would just become like a little child. just just... Little child, the kingdom of God can be yours. All of it? Yeah, all of it. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. He rose, he rose. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Christ arose. It's good news if you belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we would say to ourselves, it it can't get any better to this, to know that we are in Christ, protected from our foolish sins, having Jesus paid the full price by his suffering and death on the cross, coming to you in childlike faith and repentance, not trying to be big and brave, but being small and childlike. And asking you for the mercy to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and save us. And now, Father, as we move into this life and look past death, we see everything's in order. The beds are all made. The curtains are hung. The towels are clean. And the room is ready. And all that needs to come is the end. Either our end or when Jesus returns. And so we are welcome um, in heaven by these truths. And we anticipate heaven so much, Father. And I'm thinking of a good quote, which you already know, that C.S. Lewis said. It's those who think more about heaven become more useful here on earth. May that be true of all of us here, for Jesus' sake, as we ask that you would bless your people this morning. Amen.